Now we're back in the book of Matthew, and we find ourselves in chapter 12. The title of the sermon is Missing What Matters Most. I will be reading from the NIV this morning. And the story uh, that we're going to read, the first 14 verses of Matthew 12, is very much connected to what Jesus said in the preceding couple verses at the end of chapter 11. So we'll actually start reading together in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says there in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath, uh, priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your holy word before us. Your true, inerrant, living and active word, the very word of God in our laps, coming from our mouths, in our ears, filling the atmosphere this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. Holy Spirit, that you would reveal Christ to us in the word and all of his glory and his love and his compassion and his supremacy that you would reveal Christ to us. Please help me, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that exalts Jesus and is faithful to your word, and help us to hear and to respond and to rejoice. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage that we read, a rather lengthy one, ends with that ominous phrase, then the Pharisees went out and plotted to kill Jesus. The plot has just thickened dramatically. Now, there are plans being put in place to kill Jesus. The question is, why? Why did these religious leaders want to kill Jesus? I mean, haven't they seen what he's been doing? 
I mean, so far in his public ministry, Jesus has proclaimed the good news of of the arrival of his kingdom. He's demonstrated the arrival of that kingdom by healing the sick, calming the storm, cleansing the leper, freeing the demonized, making the paralyzed walk, raising the young girl from the dead, opening the eyes of the blind. As well as that, we have seen that Jesus was spending time with people like tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and drunkards. We also saw him claim that he is to be more loved than one's own father and mother. He also made the bold claim that to lose your life for his sake was to actually find your life. He was so bold as to pronounce judgment on a series of cities that didn't recognize his identity or his miraculous powers. And he even claimed that God the Father, the God of Israel, is only revealed through him, Christ the Son. And as we read at the end of chapter 11, he invited all who are weary and tired to come to him and said that in him and him alone, humanity could find peace. It's clear and would be clear to anyone observing the ministry and hearing the words and seeing the acts of Jesus during the unfolding chapters of Matthew, it would be clear to them that there is a new sheriff in town. And the old sheriffs didn't like it. And the old sheriffs, as you could guess, are the antagonists in our text. They are the Pharisees. And they were the sheriffs, so to speak, because Israel was, a, was predominantly, excuse me, a religious culture. And they were the dominant religious leaders and authorities of the day. The Pharisees were the ones who appear in the Gospels to be the most serious about religion and observing God's law, the Old Testament, the things that God has told us in the Old Testament, the rules, the regulations, the law that he's given us. They were the most serious and committed to observing that. And they, along with some others, were responsible for explaining to Israel what it meant to observe God's law, to obey God's word, to follow after God as Israel, as God's people. And so because of their own zeal, And because of of the way that they led Israel in observing God's law, they had tremendous authority and sway within the religious realm in Israel at that time. But they, we see in the book of Matthew, were nothing like Jesus. They themselves didn't like Jesus. They doubted his identity, his claims to deity. And it's evident that they felt threatened by Jesus as the prevailing religious authorities. They felt threatened by Jesus. The crowds that he drew, the power that he displayed, the influence that he had, the teachings that he set forth, his clear claims to deity. And so now we see the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus. And the straw that broke the camel's back here in our text was when they discovered Jesus' view of the Sabbath and they heard his claim to be Lord of the Sabbath. 
That was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, caused these guys to say, these very religious men, now we got to kill Jesus. Because the Sabbath during that time was just about the biggest thing in Judaism and in the practice of Judaism. It still is very much today. Uh, I've been to Israel 10 times. My family and I spent a few months living in Israel. And if you go to Israel at all, you know the Sabbath is a big deal, right? It starts Friday at sundown. The Sabbath is on a Saturday. They call it Shabbat. Starts Friday at sundown. So even in modern times when you're there, if you need to get any groceries, you better get them by middle of the day Friday because everything is going to shut down in the afternoon. If you need anything on Saturday on Shabbat, you're out of luck. Everything shuts down. Nobody works. Everybody goes home and gathers with family and they celebrate. They observe the Sabbath. It's a very big deal amongst observant Jews even today. And it was a very big deal during this time. The idea of the Sabbath actually comes to us from God when God gave to us through Moses the Ten Commandments. Observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy was the fourth commandment that God gave to his people. Let's look at the text here from Exodus 20. God says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. The word in Hebrew actually means to rest or or cease from working. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servants nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God's intent in giving humanity through Israel, the Sabbath, was to give us a good thing, to give his people a good thing. The Sabbath was meant to be a good thing given to God's people by God for their own good. The idea was to rest from your work and to remember your God. Not complicated. The idea for Israel was to rest from their work and to remember their God. And that's all that God said about it, basically. Not a lot there, except to observe it and to keep it holy. Now, as Christians, we don't necessarily observe the Sabbath in the same way that Israel did or does. In the New Testament, we see that the early Christians sort of did, had a, experienced a reversal of things. They begin to worship on Sunday. The Sabbath was on Saturday. They gathered on Sunday. The Jewish tradition was to gather in the synagogues on Saturday. They gathered on Sunday. That was the day that the Lord rose from the dead. And we don't see them practicing the Sabbath or observing the Sabbath in the New Testament. Again, all the early Christians were Jewish in the way that they did before. What we learn in the New Testament is many of the things that God instituted in the Old Testament pointed toward Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment in their practice, such as the sacrifices. That's why New Testament Christians, when they became 
Christians, after being raised as Jews, they didn't sacrifice in the temple anymore in the same day. They realized that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for all sins. So all those other things pointed to and were fulfilled in the person of Christ. And there are many things like that in the Old Testament. So we read in the New Testament in Colossians, things like this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Look, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Two things about that verse. Number one, that's where we actually get our name as a church. Reality, it came from that verse. Jesus is reality. He is the ultimate reality, the greater reality. That's where we get our name in case you ever wondered. Second thing is, the New Testament tells us that many of those elements of Old Testament practice were fulfilled in the person and the work and the ministry and the identity of Jesus. These are a shadow. The Sabbath was just a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, the fulfillment, the fullness thereof is found in Jesus. And the New Testament tells us elsewhere that that was true about the Sabbath, that the reality of that is discovered in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, we'll put a text up here, the author was talking about Jesus and his work for us, and he says this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. What the New Testament seems to say is that the Sabbath was fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus himself has become our rest. And the way that we worship God is through Christ. Our relationship with God is through Christ. So that we don't have to, the understanding is, like the Old Testament Jews, observe the Sabbath day in a certain way. Rather, in Jesus, we have a Sabbath existence. Because Jesus is our rest. And what that text does is just take the idea of general work in the construct of Israel and bring it into religious work, ways by which we tried to make ourselves acceptable to God. And says in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we can now rest from all that religious work, so to speak, ways that we tried to make ourselves acceptable before God and find our acceptance in Christ, our identity in Christ. So we now have rest and peace in the presence of God through our relationship with Jesus, through the forgiveness of sins, his finished work on the cross. That is why this text is connected to what Jesus said in the previous chapter. Come to me if you're weary and tired. I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. In me, you will have peace. Shalom. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of those things. Now, there is a sense, and I, I, I digress for a moment, but there is a sense in which practicing Sabbath or, or Sabbath rhythms in one's life can be healthy. A day where you rest, a day that you set aside to really uh, give attention to and concentrate on the Lord. Practicing Sabbath as a Christian sort of spiritual practice. But that's another sermon altogether. But in the New Testament, 
The Sabbath, New Testament times, excuse me, this, this time that we're looking at in the text, the Sabbath was, as I said before, the biggest deal in practicing Judaism. The Sabbath is what set Israel apart from all the other people. You know, there were other people in the world at that time who had temples where they worshipped. There were other people that made sacrifices to gods. There were even other people who were circumcised during that time. But Sabbath was unique to Israel and Judaism. So for that reason, for others, because it was the fourth commandment, they made it, the Pharisees made it, a really big deal. Keeping the Sabbath holy was a primary focus for them. Now, without a lot of information, again, we'll look at the text from Exodus. All God said was, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't do any work. That's all he said. But don't we have a uh, gift for complicating simple things? (laughs) Certainly, Israel did. And there were a lot of questions. You know, how do we keep it holy? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? And what qualifies as work? What is work? What isn't work? And religious authorities and the rabbis and the Pharisees and others would, would talk about this and write about this voluminous volumes, to say a silly phrase. They would write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines upon, here's what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Here's what you can do. Here's what you cannot do. And you know, religion has a way in our own hearts of getting a little bit contrived at times. We, we, we like workarounds, right? So there were workarounds in that day. Here's what you can do. Here's, here's what you can't do. Here's what's work. Here's what's not. When uh, my family and I were living in Israel, a couple years ago for a few months, we lived for a while next to this um, very observant Jewish family. And we were visiting with them a bit, and we were visiting with them on the Sabbath. And the wife was doing some dishes. And my wife said, wait a minute, you're doing dishes on the Sabbath? And she said, yes, but I'm using the Sabbath sponge. It's a sponge... (laughs) that doesn't need to be wrung out. So because you don't need to wring the sponge, it doesn't really count as doing the dishes. Therefore, it's not work. Therefore, Sabbath dishes, Sabbath sponge. True story. This is a true story. So things would get a little bit convoluted. And the Pharisees were, were very much in charge of that. What could be done and what couldn't be done? And as far as they could tell, what the disciples were doing in walking through this grain field and picking some grain and eating it was a violation of the Sabbath. That's what they say there in verse 2. Jesus, your disciples are violating the Sabbath. Now, what they were doing was allowed by Old Testament law. In the book of Deuteronomy, it actually says that you can, on any day, go into your neighbor's uh, vineyard and eat as many grapes as you want. You just can't pick a bunch and put them in a pail and take them away. That's awesome, right? (laughs) Go into your neighbor's house, open the fridge, have some snacks. Hey, it's in Deuteronomy. Read it. It also said that you could go into your neighbor's grain field and you could pick grain with your hands and eat it, but you couldn't take a sickle to it. So you couldn't start harvesting it, right? That would be stealing. So small snack at your neighbor's house, totally lawful, book of Deuteronomy. So what they were doing was generally fine in Israel, but the Pharisees believed that it wasn't fine to do it on the Sabbath. 
the, the way that they were doing it constituted work. Plucking the wheat from its stem was too close to reaping. Rubbing the wheat heads between one's fingers was like threshing. And separating the chaff was like winnowing. That's clearly work in ancient Israel. The disciples have to stop doing this. So they go to Jesus with that complaint. The Pharisees do. And Jesus is going to use the opportunity here to address the fact that the Pharisees were and had become quite misguided in their understanding and interpretation of the Sabbath. We'll go ahead and assume the best of the Pharisees for a moment and think that they, dealt, that they honestly wanted to honor God in their religious life, in their keeping of the Sabbath, in their rules. Maybe that's true. But in their efforts, we so often see in the Gospels, they missed what mattered most. They missed what mattered most. And Jesus uses two Old Testament stories that they would know very well or instances or situations to highlight this to them. So in verse 3, Jesus answered and said, Haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So pause right there. Jesus brings up this story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. There we find young David fleeing from mean old King Saul. King Saul is trying to kill David. He knows that God has anointed him as the next king to the throne in Israel. King Saul's not happy about it. He's pursuing David. David is fleeing from him. And in so doing, David comes to this place called Nob, N-O-B. And that's where the priests, the Levitical line, resided during that day in Israel. And apparently that's where the tabernacle ended up for some time. And in the tabernacle, just outside the Holy of Holies, there were a few items, but one of them was this rack with bread on it. It was called the showbread. And every day the bread was to be presented to the Lord, new bread. And the old bread could be eaten by the priests, but by nobody else. It wasn't wasted. The priests ate it, but it was for and unto the Lord. Humanity bringing first fruits on a regular basis to the Lord, the showbread in the tabernacle. And the law says explicitly, nobody's to eat this but the priest. David shows up fleeing from King Saul with his guys and says, listen to Ahimelech, one of the priests, we need something to eat. And Ahimelech says, dude, I, I got nothing here but the showbread, like the holy bread. And David says, let me eat that bread. And Ahimelech makes a the sort of split moment decision. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess so. I guess that would, that would be lawful for you to do that in this instance. And Jesus brings that up to the Pharisees. Listen, you guys are tripping out on my disciples eating wheat, but don't you remember the time that David went and ate the holy bread that he wasn't supposed to eat? Sometimes there are greater needs to be met. Sometimes strict adherence will cause you to miss what matters most. Sometimes there are greater needs that must be met. Jesus seems to be saying through that story of David. And then in verse 5, he brings up another situation. He says, There haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? What he means there is, we are told in uh, the book of Numbers that the priests were actually to work on the Sabbath because there was some work in the tabernacle and in the temple to be done. There were Sabbath sacrifices to be made. So no one in Israel was supposed to work except, God said, the priests. So there is an exception. Sometimes 
there is a greater work that must be done. And being careful not to do work is not the main thing. Sometimes there's a greater need to be met, and sometimes there is a greater work to be done. Jesus is teaching these very religious Jews that the Sabbath and Sabbath observance was not the ultimate thing. That was rattling to their paradigm. Jesus is saying, listen, you, you guys are missing a big part of the Old Testament here. The, the Sabbath is not the ultimate thing. Strict adherence and careful refraining from work is not what it's all about. So what is ultimate? He's going to tell them. Verse 6. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Verse 7. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus here reveals three things of greater importance than their Sabbath observance. Three more ultimate, if I could use that phrase, things. He says in verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. Just saying the temple was a way of speaking about uh, the temple and all of its services and all the things that surrounded it, including showbread and Sabbath gatherings and all those different things. He says something greater than that entire religious structure that you're so concerned about has come. He's speaking about the coming of his kingdom. Jesus bringing the kingdom. Something greater than all of this stuff that you're tripping about has arrived. All of this stuff is the shadow. The reality has come. Now, that that was a gnarly thing to say to a first century Pharisee. Something better than the temple is here. Like those are fighting words. This is why they want to kill him. Them's fighting words. Then he says to them, the craziest thing you could ever say to these guys. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Lord here meaning master. Clear claim to deity. Because from whom did the Sabbath come? They they all knew that, that, that it came from God in the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, I am the master of the Sabbath. Whoa, 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 whoa. No wonder they want to kill this guy. And then Jesus turns the flavor a little bit and he says, I wish you guys had not missed the point here that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now Jesus again is quoting from their scriptures this time, the minor prophet Hosea, the sixth chapter. Let's look at it in a little bit of context. Hosea 6, starting in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, right? Israel. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. This is speaking about the discipline and the judgment of the Lord on Israel at the time. Now, he's going to heal us. He's injured us. Now, he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Pause right there. You see all that connects with the coming of Jesus and Jesus says, come to me who are weary and tired and I will give you rest and peace. All these things are connecting in Christ. And then, verse three, they say to themselves, oh, that we might know the Lord. Right? They've drifted. They've been disciplined. They come to their senses. 
They're saying, oh, that we might know the Lord again. Let us press on to know him. That's good beginning of the year language right there. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in the early spring. Right? New Testament equivalent of that is you draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to you. Right? That's what they're doing. They're like, let's return to God. He's for sure going to draw near to us as sure as the sun comes up and the spring rains come. Now God begins to speak in response to them. Look what God says. Oh, Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Sounds like an exasperated parent. Ask the Lord. For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like the dew and the sunlight. Listen to the tenderness of God. If we could use this sort of language, like, right, he, it feels like a, a, a parent with like a rebellious teenager or something. You know, when, you know when like your kid is like 10 and they think you're the greatest human on the face of the earth and then they're 15 and they think you're the biggest idiot on the face of the earth and you're like, why don't you love me anymore? Why don't you hug me and cuddle me and snuggle with me and kiss me and think daddy could do anything? Why am I such a dork now? Right? It's almost like that kind of language, like God being to Israel, like why, what's, you get that? It says to them, your love vanishes like the morning mist. What happened between us? God says in verse five, I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces. Not literally, figuratively, take it easy. To slaughter you with my words. With judgments as inescapable as light. Then, now here's, here's the verse that Jesus quoted here in Matthew 12, Hosea 6, 6, phrased slightly differently. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Whenever Jesus brought up an Old Testament passage to someone in the Gospels, he he assumed that his Jewish listeners had a little bit of the background understanding of that text. He was bringing the Pharisees to this text in their mind, saying, remember when Israel had departed from the Lord? And they came to their senses through the Lord's discipline and they were coming back. And God, in his love, reminds them, beckons them not to miss what matters most. I want you to show love, not just offer sacrifices. I want you to know me, not just give burnt offerings. Don't miss what matters most is what's being said there. God is saying, Christ is saying, I'm not super interested, overly interested in your external observances. In fact, God says in Isaiah, I am disgusted with them if there's no inner reality. If it's mere religion, if it's routine, if you're just showing up, and there's no actual loving pursuit and engagement with me, the God who made you and loved you, then I'm actually disgusted with all this religious stuff. Even though he told them to do it and he instituted it and it was his system. The system can be abused. The system, if we don't carefully and constantly pursue real relationship, it can cause us to miss what matters most. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees that in their careful observance, religious observance, and trying to make others do so, they were missing what the Sabbath was really all about. 
And he just says to him, sometimes there's greater needs and sometimes there's a greater work. And you guys are missing the big picture that something better than the temple is here. And I, myself, am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm looking for you to be people of love and compassion with me and with others. It's a context there. And then they say, okay, we got to kill this guy. Jesus goes into the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. They want to see what he'll do if you heal on the Sabbath. Jesus says, of course I'm going to heal someone on the Sabbath. Why, are you crazy? If you had a sheep that fell in a pit, you'd rescue it. How am I not going to rescue a person in need? So what should we do with this then? How does this apply to us? Because we're not Pharisees, most of us, some of you maybe. How do we, as we think about our own lives and the year to come, how do we be careful about not missing what matters most in light of what this text says? Well, the first suggestion I would make is that we should be careful not to make our Christian spirituality about lesser things. Not to make it about mere external observances. You know, it does nobody, including yourself and God, any good to just show up to church because it's some religious thing. Why do that? Wouldn't you rather be at the beach? Or somewhere else? Like, if if, if you're going to actually show up, go for it. Pursue Jesus. Like, maybe... I'm going to go on a little bit of a, of, of a rant here, but I think it's fair. Like, maybe actually come to church on time. I took my son to see Star Wars when it came out. Bro, I was so early to that show. And so was everybody else. The theater was packed before the 18 minutes of trailer started. The theater was full. Because nobody would ever dare be late to miss Star Wars. But everybody's late for church. That actually has nothing to do with what I'm teaching in the main point. It's just been bugging the living cheese out of me for so long. Bugging the living cheese out of me. That we will be on time for a movie, but we are always late for church. Anyway. uh, Do what you want with that. About mere external observances and missing the heart of the matter, Romans 14 says this. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's in the context of external observances. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about just showing up and doing your time. And certainly, pause right there, give me your attention. Don't read your Bible this year that way. You know what I mean? Bible reading could easily become this religious routine where it's just like meaningless. That's the danger of the one-year Bible too. I find myself when I'm reading through the one-year Bible, like for some reason, because I'm so goal-oriented and want to get on the next thing, I just want to like get through it. I'm like, okay, three pages. So I don't do myself. I don't do the one-year Bible anymore because I get too like trapped in this goal. I just got to check it off. I just read however much I read that day. I read different books of the Bible. I'm starting this year in the Minor Prophets. I might read one verse that morning. I might read a hundred verses that morning. Um, But I, anyway, I don't know what I'm saying again. But it's not about mere external things. It's about this inward thing. And look how beautiful this phrase is. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
I don't even know how I could fully exegete that. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but I know I want that in 2017. It just sounds good. God, help us know what that means. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a much deeper calling. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus is talking about when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. In me, you will find peace. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. The second thing I would say about how we can think about this text for our lives is that we then need to be intentional, intentional, intentional about what matters most. Be intentional about what matters most. So don't get caught up in lesser things, mere external observances, right? Those will lose their power. They'll lose any efficacy. They can actually cause our hearts to grow dead and cold to God. But then on the flip side, we need to be really intentional about what matters most. Someone once came to Jesus in the Gospels and said to him, Teacher, tell me what matters most. He used the phrase, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all the heart, all the heart soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So we need to be really intentional to go after what matters most. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's real relationship. There's real pursuit there. It's a meaningful thing. There's no, there's no uh, rote, religious, weird, dead stuff in that. It's like really loving, going after the Lord, pursuing Him, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So if Jesus, as we saw from Hebrews chapter 4, is our Sabbath rest Himself, And Jesus shows us in this text that it's good to do good and to show mercy on the Sabbath. Then part of what it must mean to follow Jesus, to rest in him, is to actually engage in good works. Selfless good works. An intentionality about it. Not as dead religion, but as truly resting in Jesus. Again, if Jesus is our Sabbath... And Jesus just showed us from the text by healing the man with a withered hand that it's good to do well to other people in Sabbath rest. And part of our resting in Jesus is doing good in the world. The book of Ephesians connects us clearly to our salvation in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one could boast, right? No one gets to say, hey, God has accepted me because I'm awesome and I've done all the right things. Nobody gets to say that. That's what the Pharisees were trying to say. Bad. But look what verse 10 says. We are his workmanship. Masterpiece is a good translation of the word there. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Notice that. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. They don't earn us anything, but they are the result of the receiving of grace. And I find I need to be intentional about doing selfless good for others. Because my default is to do selfish good for me. And if to rest in Jesus is to do good, 
If he's my Sabbath rest and part of the rest in him is do good and an expression of my salvation is that I do good and that God actually prepared good works for me beforehand, I need some intentionality in my life to discover those things and walk in them. And in that, I find life. Don't you find the more selfish you are, the more you die, the more selfless you are, the more you live? Jesus is teaching that. And the final thing I would say is don't allow anything to obscure the fact that Jesus is ultimate. He said, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You guys are missing this whole point. Why are you crying about grain? I'm the ultimate, Jesus says to them. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is supreme. And it's just easy in life to let that just be lip service and not a real way that we live. It's easy through distractions, good things and bad things. It's easy through pain, right? Sometimes our own woundedness can sort of obscure the greatness of God because we so give ourselves to the way that we are wounded and and the bitterness that it creates, that we nurture, that defiles others. And it obscures the greatness and the glory of Jesus. I understand that. Sometimes storms in our lives can obscure the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus. We get so caught on the wind and the waves that we start to sink into those circumstances. Just need some intentionality to not let life obscure the supremacy of Jesus. Sometimes it's good pursuits. They're just really fun and we give ourselves ourselves to them wholeheartedly and they are actual gifts from God, but they at some point become idols because we give them more attention and love than we actually do God. That's pretty commonplace. So once again, Hebrews says this, and we end here. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest in Christ. Then it goes on. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is your rest. Jesus is is your peace in this crazy world with what is sure to be a crazy year. We need more Jesus. If you do anything in 2017, pursue Christ harder than you've ever done in your life. He is faithful. He loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never let us down. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for these beautiful truths you've given us in your word. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. We believe you're the ultimate thing and you're better than anything else. Help us to live that out. Help us to experience that. Rescue our affections, God. 
Holy Spirit, you are the gift from the Father to help us rightly exalt Jesus. Help us to rightly exalt and adore and enjoy Jesus. Spirit, help us to bring the storms that face us today to the loving arms and feet of Christ. Help us bring our idols to Christ. Help us bring today our hurts that have obscured your beauty. Jesus, all of our hope is in you. Show yourself to be great and glorious. Meet us in this time as we worship you, as we bow before you, as we sing to you, as we take communion together, as we pray. Be gloriously present, Lord. I don't want to be I don't want to be where your presence isn't. I want to be with your people in your presence. Thank you, God, that you are here. Pray for a greater experience of your presence and your love. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, would that be ours? Thank you for loving us. Help us to pursue you now and this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.